I was saying I was, I'm kind of chuckling to myself inside because I'm sitting here and I don't have a talk prepared. And somehow I'm not that bothered by it. And so it's a very uh, unusual feeling for me, I must say. Um, I spent about three or four days trying to get a talk together, but nothing was coming. Nothing would come. I kept trying and trying and trying, but nothing would come. And then about the last hour or so before this time that I was supposed to give a talk, I was writing some things and writing some things. I'd throw the papers away and writing some things and throwing the papers away. And so I had to completely surrender to sitting here (laughs) and really going with what feels most uh, true right now. Because the theme that kept coming for me when I was, was thinking about all these other ideas that didn't work out was wanting to talk about um, some of my experiences in India. Because um, 13 years ago, I was living in San Francisco. I lived there for 10 years, the San Francisco lifestyle, um, which was similar then as it is now. And then I left, and I went to India. And I didn't go back to San Francisco. And it seems that that event, that event that happened, was so significant that it turned my life in a completely different direction. And being here now, being here at Spirit Rock this week, I feel something very different in myself. Being here in Marin, being here at Spirit Rock, that some kind of transformation has happened over the last 13 years. And I think why this is coming up so strongly for me now is because I'm here. And I feel that change. I feel that that inner uh, shift within myself compared to how I was when I was living in San Francisco uh, for those 10 years. It seems that that direction that I went in was very much one of renunciation. And it seems that in many ways I've been living my life in more of a renounced way. But it wasn't really with an intention to do that. I didn't make like a conscious choice, a conscious idea and say, okay, now I'm going to renounce everything and I'm going to go off to India, and I'm going to live this whole other life. It didn't seem to happen that way. It was a gradual evolution of letting go and renouncing the things that I had when I was living in San Francisco, which was actually extremely comfortable um, uh, in a very nice Victorian house with all the things that I needed, um, having... Uh, a very wonderful sangha, uh, a lovely life around me. But there's some way that I was living, and I didn't know it at the time, but some kind of a narrow life. Something was very narrow. Life seemed to be uh, very consumed with the Bay Area. 
And I was invited by Christopher, actually, to go to Bodh Gaya, where the Buddha was enlightened, to teach in India in 1987. And everything seemed to turn from there. And what I realize now is how much attachment there was to comfort, how much attachment I had to feeling a certain sort of pleasurable kind of experience around me, having nice things, nice possessions, nice place to live, kind of going out to the restaurants, going to the movies, you know, having sort of this appearance of and, and, and sort of the feeling of quite a an easeful life. And yet when I got to India and I was really confronted with a whole other way of living, the first time I went, living in a uh, small cement kuti, a little house of about, um, would be about six feet by six feet. Uh, no, no heat of cement, no heat, uh, just a straw mat on the floor. And uh, it was winter. It's winter in India. Everyone thinks it's warm, but it's actually very cold. The, wind, the nights get down to about 30, uh, f- uh, 35, 40 degrees at night. Just being in this little cement room for 20, 21, 22 days, kind of thrown there from my life in San Francisco. And I remember this, trying to gather together everything that I could possibly need while I was there. You know, my wool sweaters and my down vests and uh, my wool socks and shoes and everything that I knew that, was gonna, that, I could, that I could carry with me that was going to keep me comfortable. And I did a pretty good job. But then what would happen is I would go out to uh, the, the, the streets of the Thai temple where, where we were teaching our retreat. And there would be these little children little brown-skinned Indian children, barefoot, wearing just little tiny cotton shirts or little tiny cotton skirts, carrying their little baby brothers or sisters who would probably have been about 10 months or a year old without anything on, maybe a little bracelet around their ankle. And they were cold. They were cold, but they didn't (laughs) think much about that they could make that different in, in their lives. They were just, that was their way of life. And so many things began to happen that would show me how really, truly privileged I was. That I could have these comforts. I could somehow gather these conveniences around me. But that, that was very unusual for most people on this planet. There are a lot of people who don't have those privileges. There were a number of memories that came back. I remember one time, um, Christopher, I think he really wanted me to have a strong experience because he would take me to different, different things, different places. And one time we went on a, a train. We were taking a train from, uh, uh, I think, uh, Patna to Gaya. And it was a third-class train. And this time, it wasn't a, even a car that had any seats in it. We just went into this empty car, 
that basically was filled with a lot of Indian people, men and women sitting on the floor with their goats and their sheep and their baskets of food. And um, we just went in there and sat down with them. And again, the sense of some feeling so privileged that I, this was a choice that I had to go into this car, but I didn't, I didn't have to because I couldn't afford it or that's the way that I lived. And so this would happen again and again. And of course, I was having to deal with so much of my aversion to what I was seeing, what I was experiencing, how my heart would just get, get pulled and, 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 and hurt by the things that I was seeing all around me. Seeing sick people on the streets, sometimes seeing corpses on the street, seeing the beggars, seeing all that was all around, all that was all around. And my heart would just feel this deep pain. But for years and years, I didn't want to feel it. I didn't want to feel it. I would go back to India every year. And I went back to India for 12 winters out of the last 14 winters. And I would keep feeling this pain in my heart and finding ways to work with this real aversion and this pushing away, not wanting to experience not wanting to experience these very unpleasant sights and unpleasant smells and tastes and, and feels and touches in my body, wanting, not wanting to feel the emotions that were moving through my body. And yet knowing that there was some way that I needed to open my heart to all of this because it was true, because it was real. And so it seems that so much of the transformation that happened within me was really around working with this particular tendency of my own mind, of this aversion, and this wanting to shut out, wanting to shut out, not wanting to let in or admit or, or, or acknowledge that there was this going on, this was going on in the world. And it would have been so easy for me to run back <laughs> to my protective shell, my protective world, protected world, my protected life. But yet I went back. There was something that pulled me, something that pulled me there. And I would just feel the most strongly aversive states of mind. I think I really got to know aversion really well. Just the tendency of mind to just want to shut it all out feeling strong anger at the world, at life, at myself. Get it away. Keep it out. And I remember one time in the first few years lying in a, a, a hotel in Varanasi in Banaras near the Ganges River. It was at night, and right next to the small hotel there was a temple, and the bells were ringing all night just ringing bells. I, it was, it was, I was trying to get a good night's sleep. And the bells were just ringing and ringing and ringing. And I remember probably having one of the strongest averse, aversion attacks that I ever had. Just really just filled with this hatred for India. Why do I come here? Why do I put myself into this? And yet knowing, because I had years of practice, years of, uh, of teachings that say, Go into it. 
open to it, feel it. And so it really became my practice. How can I work with this? How can I be with all this this strong tendency of mind to want to push it out and run back to my comfort, run back to my conveni- the conveniences of life? So I had to work with that. Had to work with that. And one of the teachings, one of the teachings that that comes through in the Buddhist teachings is the teaching around. Uh, not just feeling and uh, experiencing the aversion and letting it go, because, you know, lots of times we can't just let it go, but the Buddha talks about inclining the mind in a different direction. So if the aversion is very strong, very uh, difficult, the thoughts are coming up very strong, the bodily feelings are very contracted and, and intense, to incline the mind towards something different. In this case, something beautiful or something joyful. Not just to sit with the, with the aversion, not just to um, wallow in it or try to find some way to release it, but actually generate conditions of mind, inner, inner uh, conditions, and generate conditions in the outer that actually turn the mind, pull the mind towards something beautiful. And in India, the interesting thing is there is many beautiful things and joyful things as they are aversive and very difficult and painful, which is one of the magic, the magical aspects of being there. And yet my tendency, the tendency of mind is towards aversion. And each person, it seems, according to the Buddhist teachings, has a tendency that moves one way or another. The mind either moves towards aversion, it moves towards desire or greed or grasping, or it moves towards dullness or ignorance or just not noticing, which is called uh, delusion. So we have one of these three types of mind, aversion or or lust or greed or uh, delusion. Well, my mind moves towards the aversion, not wanting being critical or pushing experience away. And so I took this practice of inclining the mind toward the beautiful, such a fascinating practice, to actually, when my mind would turn towards, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be in a uh, rickshaw, and I could just see my mind would look right into the gutter and look at the crap in the gutter and say, God! Look how disgusting that is. You know, but just a, if I would move my eyes about three feet to the left, I would see these beautiful women in these very colorful saris carrying baskets of, of fruit and vegetables, you know. But where did my mind go? Right into the gutter, you know. And so seeing this again and again, and of course I was traveling with my partner and he uh, helped me uh, ob- uh, notice this. Look where your mind is going. <laughs> And, and it, we could just see how that the tendency to go into the unpleasant, to go into the painful, was, it was a conditioned response, a conditioned response of mind. It was, it was something that, that, there, that there was some tendency that for some reason, whether it's this life or, another, or past life or wherever these tendencies arise from, that's where the mind moved, into the ugly or into the unpleasant. So I actually took it as a practice, 
when I noticed my mind inclining that way, to actually see if I could turn it another way. And it didn't take much. It didn't take much just to turn it, to see something that was beautiful. And then through the contact with the sight or the smell, then there would be the, 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 the uh, following emotional response. Ah, some relief or some joy or some opening that would happen. And so that would be such a, such a good practice, particularly in a place that was so filled, so intense, tensely filled with this uh, strong range of the unpleasant and the beautiful, the whole range. So really working with my mind around that, working with my mind around that. And as I became, became, became a bit more uh, uh, soft and a bit more stable, in, in myself, then I could start to turn the mind a little more toward the unpleasant, towards the suffering, towards that, towards see the sights and the smells and the, the sounds that were, were really hard to be with. And because there was a certain capacity or certain strength that I had gained or gathered over time, then I was able to, to work with those, to be with those situations more of the time. So it's a process. I saw it was a process of opening, of growing, of developing. Not something that I could just apply some technique and let go. You know, sometimes I think we want the, the teachings and the, the methods, the techniques, to be some kind of magic wand, you know, where we can just uh, apply something and then we can let go. Or apply some kind of technique and then something releases. And then if it doesn't, there's a way that we personalize that. And we can get down on ourselves and what's wrong with me that I can't do this practice, I can't do the techniques. But it's not like that. It's not like that. It's a whole development, it's a whole training that's going on here. You know? I mean, sure, we can have very profound and very deep insights into the nature of things. And that happens, can happen in an instant can happen in a moment when something becomes very clear, something opens up for us, and something really shifts within our own consciousness, within our own being. But then the tendencies come back, the patterns come back, and the, and the, and the, the, the Dharma gives us these tools and the resources to learn how to work with these strong tendencies of mind. Correspondingly, while I was also uh, teaching in India and traveling in India, I also spent, spent time with a, a wonderful uh, a master there named Punjaji, who was not a Buddhist master. He was from the Ramana Maharshi tradition. And it was more of an ecstatic kind of uh, uh, situation, being with Punjaji, lots of uh, uh, fun and celebration and joy and uh, wonderful insights. And many people who spent time with uh, Punjaji had, had very strong openings that happened for them, you know, heartful openings, mindful openings. And so there was a lot of celebration that was going on. But I was going there over a few years, maybe six years, seven years, as I would go back to India and, and, and spend time there. 
And what I saw was that many people who were going there didn't have a practice. They didn't have a, they didn't have access to methods and techniques that we have access to here in the Buddha Dharma. And much of what was happening for them was through the interaction with the teacher, with the community, uh, through the whole joyful celebration that was, that was going on there. And so there was a sense of, of, because there was so much joy and a lot of bliss for a lot of people, that, 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 that they had arrived somewhere, that, that there was some kind of great uh, liberation or uh, deep understanding that had occurred because of the experiences, because of the states of mind and the experiences of bliss and joy that many people had. But what we found again and again in talking to many people was that when they went back into their daily life and, and they were back into the, to the grind of, 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 of daily living, that the tendencies came back again, that the strong patterns of mind returned. And once again, there wasn't access to the, to the resources to how, to how to work with those. How to, how to be with uh, the difficult mind states and the difficult emotions and the distracting emotions of, of mind and heart. And so it seemed that a number of people then would have to return back to um, some kind of tradition or practice to once again learn how to, how to, how to be in the world of, of, of pain and the world of joy in a more balanced way, in a more integrated way. So it seemed that by by going back to India again and again and again, it was such a powerful training ground for me because it threw me right in to probably some of the most difficult situations I can ever imagine encountering and caused me to have to face, if I made that choice, to face the most painful aspects of my own mind, of my own heart, of my own being. Just this last February, when I, uh, when I went this year, which is actually the last year I'm going for a while because um, it's hard. <laughs> It's really hard. It has been for me. Maybe not for everybody. I don't think it is for Christopher. Um, I've decided to take a break for a while. Just to, just to let things settle for a while here in America. But this last February, and maybe this is partly why I want to talk about it tonight, because it's um, kind of a <laughs> saying goodbye for a little while. And and bringing to light some of the some of the lessons that have happened for me. But this February, once again, I had a very strong lesson. And I went down to the south to meet a friend, a friend from England who has been in India for a number of years as well, speaks fluent Hindi, and really she's lived in India and worked with the village people and is very uh, grassroots in, in terms of the uh, of Indian uh, politics. 
And so I met her in the South, and uh, she wanted, again, I meet these people who want to expose me to these, these lessons. So she took me to um, uh, one of her dear friend's homes, and it was a woman named Satcha. Uh, she was a doctor at one of the hospitals in this town in the south of India, kind of a little bit middle class, uh, and not so poor, not so poor. And uh, Satcha was one of the doctors who was trying to bring some reform, some change to the hospital there, because the conditions are just so pitiful for the people to get medical care. And she was particularly interested in uh, caring for the newborn uh, babies who were born with uh, real difficulties and didn't have proper uh, conditions in the hospital to help their survival. And so she built a whole neonatal unit to help with these babies. And I went there. And it's probably the most challenging thing I ever did to go into the hospital and and to witness the work that this woman was doing on a daily basis out of the goodness of her heart, out of the love of her heart for these babies and for the critical uh, situation that these babies are in. Very, very powerful to see this, that again, the privilege, the privilege that we have, the things that we take for granted, and then looking and seeing how probably most of the world lives and what most of the world deals with. I was staying at her house and went down to a little corner shop to get some get a few things, get some biscuits, some soap. When I was down at the shop, just the shop around the corner, there's just this little kind of hole in the wall. And this is the shop that most everybody on the streets, and this is even a little bit middle class, gets their their things that they need, their rice, their flour, their, their soap, their toothpaste, their biscuits, just a little shop. And my friend pointed out to me, she said, you know, people don't really think about having much choice here because this is all they need. Everything, in this, everything they need is in this little shop. They have their rice, their flour, their soap, uh, uh, um, fruits, a few fruits and vegetables in season, and everything's right there. So when they go to the shop, they get what they want and then uh, go back, back home. And it really struck me how the, this, this, this movement or this condition of choice that we have in this country is, so, is, is conditioned. It's, again, something that we take for granted, something that we just assume is our right to have. But yet I think about this little shop that had everything. There wasn't anything, really, that anybody would need that was, wasn't in this little shop. And how, how somehow, you know, it's not like you have three different choices about rice or ten different choices on what kind of milk or uh, <laughs> 20 choices on what kind of yogurt or, uh, you know, it's just yogurt or flour or um, toothpaste, whatever it is. 
it's just this, again, this world of choice, this world of choice. You know, and then coming, I remember coming back, um, this is in February, and I was teaching a course up in Canada and uh, in Saskatchewan, which is wide open prairie. And because there's so much space in this place in Regina where I was teaching, I noticed that there was a, a Walmart that was recently built there. And it was probably the biggest Walmart that I had ever seen. And I think they built such a big one because there was so much space. So they just filled the space. And it was just right after I got back from India. And I remember looking at that building and thinking about what was in there. What was in there? What could possibly <laughs> fill a building that was bigger than the size of a, of a, of a football field? You know? And again, just feeling, you know, feeling into that, the privilege, the privilege and how we just take so much for granted. And I know when I was living in San Francisco, it, this, it, you know, because of my conditioning, this, this, I'm sure not everybody's like me and other people were much more aware and much more conscious, but it did never occurred to me. I was living in this delusion living in this ignorance of not knowing, not knowing about what was happening in the rest of the world. And so choice, the sense of privilege that we have, you know, and I, and, I, and I can't shake that now. I can't shake that. So being here in Marin County and being here in this area, you know, I, I feel like something's radically shifted inside of me. Something's really changed. And there's some kind of movement towards things, movement towards the objects around me that just has lost its interest, lost its power, lost its grip. There's just no more interest to move in a certain way. It seems that there's a time when something happens, when something shifts, where it's not that we have some kind of idea that we need to let go, or that we can't have certain things around us, or you know, we have to live a certain kind of life of renunciation or simplicity, or whatever it is. But it seems that when the wisdom goes really deep, and we really understand about the things of this world, the, the things of this existence, that, that movement to have, the movement to want, the movement to gather things around, to accumulate, just doesn't arise. It just doesn't arise. It's like the wisdom, the wisdom goes so deep that that wisdom is in place that doesn't, that informs the mind, that informs the heart, that informs the being. And so this says something. This says something about the movements of our mind, of, a, of attraction and aversion, and how we get so caught up in that, in the craving and the grasping and the wanting and the not wanting and the strong forces of mind. It seems that something needs to be understood. Something needs to be understood. And that journey 
that path is going to be different for everybody. What's going to happen that something starts to shift, something starts to turn, so that we're not making the same choices that we've always made. That something starts to inform the choices in a different way. That we, we find that certain attractions and aversions just don't arise in the mind. It's not interested. And it doesn't mean that then there's no, ah, there's kind of a sense of emptiness or uh, some loss or some uh, uh, hole that needs to be nourished. There's another level, another kind of contentment might say fulfillment, the mind that doesn't need to go anywhere, the mind that doesn't need to move out to anything. But there's just a kind of a simple contentment. I think the Buddha calls this the greatest gain, the greatest gain, the wisdom that knows that it doesn't, one doesn't need anything really doesn't need very much, not anything. You don't need very much. In the practice, we have a word or a concept that's called restraint. Restraint. It's something that comes through in the Buddhist teachings, and I think it's a word that gets quite misunderstood, this word of restraint. Because I think that restraint is really a force of mind that is informed by wisdom. It's informed by wisdom that allows us to apply the wisdom that we actually know. It's not, restraint is not something that arises out of fear. It doesn't arise out of some kind of idea that we have to suppress something or uh, uh, pull away from something out of some idea that it's bad for us or wrong for us. It doesn't arise out of being judgmental or condemning of ourselves. Restraint arises out of wisdom. Wisdom that knows that if we move in a certain direction that it's not going to be skillful for us. It's not going to be helpful for us. And it's not going to be helpful for someone else either. Perhaps we start seeing a bigger picture of the effect of our our actions and and the movements of our mind and and body and speech and actions and the, the effect that that has. So restraint, it's something that we can practice. It's something that we can gather. We can gather the, the energy of restraint. And to, when we see the tendency of mind to move out in a certain way, we can pull back. We can gather that energy back out of wisdom. And this restraint, can, we, can, we can see this in, in, in our days here, or we can see it in our daily lives, uh, the, how this can affect our life and affect our, our way of being. When I was thinking about this today, about this uh, power of restraint, 
the image came to me of a, a deity in, the, in Tibetan Buddhism of uh, Manjusri. And Manjusri is a, a deity that, that is holding a sword. And it's uh, the sword of wisdom. Manjusri is holding the sword of wisdom. And it's a sword that just cuts, you know, cuts through. The sword that cuts through. It's interesting because I think we all have this sword of wisdom within our, ourselves. But I think it depends how we use this sword, how we wield this sword. Because the sword doesn't have to be one of destruction, you know, destruction in a way that we're actually hurting ourselves or hurting anybody else through, you know, cutting through things that we think are wrong or bad or unskillful. But again, this is the sword of wisdom, that which cuts through those tendencies of mind, of heart, that are not leading us towards more harmony, not leading us towards more happiness and contentment. But that sword of wisdom that cuts through the movement of mind that actually is is leading towards more pain and suffering, not only for ourselves, but for others and, and everyone on our entire planet. And in order to start to know this archetype or this, this uh, aspect of our own mind, this sword, that this manjusri or this, that, that's holding the sword of wisdom, it really requires a wise, discriminating mind. It really requires a great deal of discrimination, a mind that can discriminate between those, the thoughts and, and the patterns of mind that are moving towards that which is leading to more pain and that, that which is leading towards more happiness. And we can see this, particularly as you have been sitting and gathering your mindfulness, gathering your energies of, of attention, and the mind starts to quiet down and to settle down the usual uh, rush of attraction and aversion and that whole complexity that we usually find ourselves caught in. But as the mind starts to settle down, what we then begin to have access to is this discrimination, which is informed by wisdom the wisdom that knows what to follow and what not to follow, what to listen to and what not to listen to. And we can see this all through our days here. Even when we sit, when we sit in the, in the posture and we have our legs crossed or we're sitting on a chair or we're sitting on a bench, we just sit in that posture and we don't move, you know? sitting in that unmoving posture of meditation. It carries with it such strong wisdom of restraint. Because in those moments, we're not giving in to every impulse of the mind. We're not following every desire, every wish, every want, every uh, judgment, every condemnation. I mean, that might be moving in the mind, but it's not strong enough to gather the 
gather the bo- the body and move the body into action and move the, the voice and, sp- and speech into words. We're just sitting really with, with quiet dignity and we're containing all of that energy of the mind. Because what usually happens is when we're moving and we're in our daily life and we're in relationship and interaction, all that gets expressed. Through, through speech and through action. No wonder we get ourselves in so much trouble. <laughs> but here we have a chance to just sit, not act on it, not act on all those impulses of mind. And we can f- kind of feel, we can kind of sense that archetype of manjusri you know, cutting through and cutting through because we're not following it. We're not feeding it. We're not increasing the negativity and the judgment and the, and the, the negativity. And through that, through the quieting of that and the not, not buying into all of that, that there's the possibility for the, the wisdom to start to, to reveal itself to start to show through. There's the possibility of, of listening in and, 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 and accessing a different voice that may be more informed from the heart, from, from, a, from a deeper place of our being that we don't often, often have the ability to access. And as we start to reinforce that, that's making more of an impression, more of an impact as we speak and as we, we act and as we move in the world. In this way, we begin to bring about this inner transformation of consciousness through, this, through the power of restraint, not suppression not repression, but openness. Opening to everything that arises in our mind, in our emotions, in our body, in our feelings. Opening to it all. But discriminating what to follow and what not to follow. What to listen to, what not to listen to. And through this, beginning to steady the mind, steady the being, so that we can act with more clarity, act with more wisdom. And we can see that this is not just for our own benefit. We're not, this is not a, a self-indulgent practice as it often gets seen as or reported as, you know. We're just doing this for ourselves, But when we really start to see the bigger picture and we, we, we open out to what these teachings are really about, we see that it's, there is no, in some ways, there's no individual self. How can there be an individual self? When every thought, every, every word, every action impacts so strongly and so powerfully, everything around us. And the more that we can act with clarity and wisdom and insight and kindness and generosity towards ourselves and towards others, 
slowly begins to transform everything. Hmm. I think that's all I have to say. I'm not even sure where all that came from. I'll just end with a, a quote from Lao Tse from the Tao Te Ching. If you realize you have enough, you are truly rich. Be content with what you have. Rejoice in the way things are. When you realize there is nothing lacking, the whole world belongs to you. Let's sit quietly for a few minutes. May all beings live with appreciation. May all beings live with compassion. May all beings find true simplicity. Thank you. It's just coming to 8.15 now, and there'll be a half an hour now for walking, and we'll come back together for our last uh, sitting.